0: Shiloh ate my couch. Again? The entire thing, well she just finished it off. So I am experiencing a new interior design uh, school of thought, which is basically don't replace anything.
1: So now you have no couch. It's like
0: minimalism, (laughs) it's minimalism by dog.
1: Didn't we decide last time that minimalism might be harming people? Yes. So minimalism is not going to harm your dog because she won't have anything to eat that is not food. Right.
0: And, and some of the some so of the couch good. was making her sick. Yeah. That's true.
1: Okay. It's Dogs. for dog health. <laughs> that's
0: right. <laughs> Modernism. Good for your pets. Yeah. <laughs> this is Charles.
1: And this is Rachel.
0: From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. Chances are, if you live in a city, you've noticed them. Quirky little interventions into the sidewalk, a small parklet that wasn't there before, or dangling lights in an alley that suddenly appear. And then days later, just as fast as they appeared, they're gone. If any of those sound like something you came across in your city, you experienced tactical urbanism. That's really just a fancy phrase for temporary installations in civic public areas what might seem like a simple change to your sidewalk or street for a few days can have a lasting impact on how our cities evolve and how we inform the civic spaces of the future. What are the pros and cons of these guerrilla-style examples of urban design? Is tactical urbanism an effective way to shape our cities or a frivolous exercise akin to sidewalk chalk? Should we embrace tactical urbanism as a way to prototype our future communities or relegate it to its own time and place? To help us answer those questions and more, we have with us Taylor McNeil, a landscape architect here at Borden Bellum. Taylor, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Charles and Rachel.
0: So before we get into all of the tactical urbanism discussion, how uh, how long have you been in Seattle and where did you grow up?
2: I've been in Seattle since October of last year, so coming up on a full year. And before that, I was in Texas for my whole life. So I started out in Dallas, Texas, and went to school at Texas A&M University. And then I lived in Houston, worked professionally for about five and a half years, and then decided to come up here through a series of events. But it's a different story
0: entirely. (laughs) Next week's episode will be called A Series of Events, where we go on and Taylor's complicated trip from Texas to Seattle. Everyone (laughs) everyone I've ever met from Texas thinks Texas is like a super, super special place. Are you one of those people?
2: You know, I I don't have, like, a lot of school spirit or, like, loyalty to those types of things. I grew up in, like, a metropolitan thing, so I don't have the Texas accent Mm -hmm. very often. Do other (laughs) Texans, are they able to spot it? It's more people that aren't from Texas. They can hear it better. Because if I'm meeting another Texan, they're going to be like, where's your accent? And they think I'm an imposter, (laughs) and I'm not really from Texas. But it's more of an East Texas thing and a West Texas thing to have an accent. Mm -hmm. Most of the metro areas, you just don't have that just Mm -hmm. because diversity and urban urbanism and all those things. So,
0: Has it been adjusting to Seattle from Texas?
2: It's funny you asked that because just this whole last week, every day I walk outside and I say, I freaking love this city. You know, like <laughs> the weather plays a huge role for me. It's just been like great since I got here. I'm really into the outdoors, like most Seattle people, I'm sure. So getting outside and seeing a new uh, geology and different climates and ecologies that are out here is really interesting for me. So it's been a, like a series of explorations since I got here. For sure, just going around to different regions and seeing the rock formations and kind of the geological history of things. It's been fascinating. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, Putting the subject together for the show, the phrase tactical urbanism is appropriate, but I found it to be a difficult wall to jump, to figure out a way to make it sound accessible. It sounds really exciting from a designer perspective, because like, it just sounds like something I want to read about as a designer. But I thought about, oh, my gosh, like, if I'm, like, talking to a person who doesn't live in the design world, tactical urbanism is going to seem like this extremely esoteric thing. The funny thing is, from what I read, it's actually very, very simple and one of the most accessible ways to interact with design.
2: Yeah, I don't like the name tactical urbanism for (laughs) the same reasons. Uh It also sounds kind of gimmicky, you know? Right. The name tackle urbanism also has a lot of synonyms, so like pop-up urbanism is a different word, Uh, do-it-yourself urbanism, Um, urban acupuncture is something that people say a lot. Oh, I like that. Yeah, so the accessibility of the idea is it's like attraction, and so giving it a name that suits that better. I think is probably one of the first steps, but this is a really relatively recent concept that's being explored in like design studios and city planning. So I'm sure we'll see variations of this pop up and they'll have different names and different offshoots over time collectively now it's being referred to as tactical and I think it's because it's like these acute moments that are very intentional Mm -hmm. and they're part of a larger strategy so the United States just has a strong military history and I think someone just riffed off that you know (laughs) right yeah
0: well I mean yeah the more I think about it it makes sense at the same time it's like it's so simple it can be so simple I guess is the better way to put it because it could be quite complicated depending What are the boundaries of tactical urbanism on both ends? On what end do you fall off that something is so simple that it's not? Mm -hmm. And then on what end does it become a building or a park or a sidewalk or a sanctioned part of the city? Sure,
2: like an actual improvement to the (laughs) city. Right, right. So I think we can think of tactical urbanism in like two distinct categories. One is more about human expression and placemaking. And the other one is more planning initiatives and stuff. So we can go down both rabbit holes because I have experience with both. But let's talk about the urban planning side of this first. I think we need to like zoom out in like the context of like why tactical urbanism is even a thing. So I'm sure you've seen like those awesome maps of figure ground. And if you look at those maps, they very clearly show kind of the network of buildings and then open space that stitch those places together. And if you look at like a medieval city like Barcelona or something, you'll see these like very tightly knitted cores that have these very obscure turns and kind of these hidden spaces. All of it's connected by this kind of ad hoc or almost like organic growth. It looks like an organism. And then you look at, you know, let's just say post-war United States city like Atlanta or Dallas. Like, they're very rectilinear. The geography of the region is not really taken into play. There's a lot more evidence of human control and structure. And that definitely led to, like, larger blocks. And so that's a big thing in urban planning is that the longer the block distance, the less walkable a city is. Mm -hmm. And walkability is important for a lot of reasons. It's an economic driver for the surroundings. It also helps with sense of place. So I think what has happened is that we've seen kind of a divergence of the human side of cities being replaced by more efficient transportation-oriented cities. And especially after World War II with the rise of the automobile, you can see how city planning largely revolved around creating accessible lanes for car travel and so you end up with city right-of-ways that are 100 feet wide and who wants to walk across a hundred foot crosswalk you know so you're creating these miss scaled mm-hmm. spaces and you end up with bleak urban environments that don't support residential life they can't support the corner stores they can't support the local shop owners because there's nobody there it just becomes a ghost town essentially mm-hmm. houston is a perfect example of that and that's where i started doing all my tactical urbanism was working for a planning firm. And so we started to address a lot of these things. And there's a lot of great resources out there these days that have identified these problems in the urban environment in terms of scale of streets and right-of-ways. This is all public space, by the way, that you're paying taxes on annually to maintain that space. So it seems appropriate that you are, it should be designed in a way that suits your needs, not just when you're in the car, Mm -hmm. but when you're walking around with your dog or your child or you're trying to get from, you know, a restaurant to the concert that night Mm -hmm. or whatever your urban experience is, you know, it should suit that. So I think
0: that touches on something interesting in that urban intervention. The client is the public. But that is a very complicated pie chart of people. There are commuters, there are the local small businesses, there's the local big businesses, Mm -hmm. there's cyclists, there's homeless. How do you manage all of the different pressures and wants and needs, even for a very small intervention?
2: One of the biggest advantages of tactical urbanism is this community engagement aspect and the ability to see changes at a one-to-one scale before they go into effect. So typically community engagement with public projects, it's kind of town hall style meetings Hmm. where people are given a time and a place to show up and voice their opinions on something that's definitely going to affect their lives. And a lot of people work multiple jobs and don't have time to do that, but the project is going in their area. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the advantages of tactical urbanism is that it's a short-term temporary thing. It goes out, you get to demonstrate its effect through the realignment of the space. Let's say you add a crosswalk and you take away a lane and add a protected bike lane in. You can do that with tape and leave it up for a week and then give people a chance to live with it Mm -hmm. and actually provide real-time feedback on those improvements. You get like some nuanced feedback too. Like, hey, the bike lane here, there's a conflict with the intersection right there. And those are things that you can't necessarily determine in the planning process Mm -hmm. or in a town hall meeting. Those are things that have to be there for you to be able to test it. And so I think having that builds a relationship between an individual and the community that they're listening and they're not moving forward with large amounts of tax money to implement something that they haven't vetted with the community. Right. So this gives that opportunity for prolonged feedback period, which is super important in like getting contextual design right. Mm -hmm. And then they can stage the improvement over time and make modifications based off the feedback from the tactical version of the long-term improvement. Does that make sense? Yes.
0: No, that makes perfect sense. During my research, I discovered, and I had no idea, that parklets and temporary parklets are actually very controversial as far as tactical urbanism is concerned. And there's a lot of discussion over which economic strata really benefits from, you know, Mm. temporarily taking parking spaces and doing things with them. And I I don't even have a specific question. I'm just eager to know more about how that became controversial and what the different discussion talking points are.
2: The commercialization of public space, essentially.
0: It sounds like it. From what I was reading, it's more uh, who... uh, Or what
1: is the pushback that you get from taking over... Okay. Yeah, what was considered resources and the that resources that go into to. it
0: because it's strange. It's like those parking spaces are public space and then they become semi-private, mm-hmm. not truly public.
2: Right. And not in just that case. anyone
1: can decide to take over a parking spot on parking day, right? There's an application right, right, right. process, oh, or uh-huh. is that different by city? It's
2: very different by city. Mm-hmm. So that's like a whole. So it's not like somebody can just
1: decide. A private citizen. I am going to decide that this parking spot is now my personal private space.
2: Yes, you cannot just go. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can. You can do whatever you want. Um, That's kind of the root of it. The unsanctioned side of tactical urbanism is that's the spirit that it's trying to capture. you know. Mm -hmm. But Seattle specifically has done a really great job of streamlining the municipal process for getting a permit to do something like this. Granted, when we're talking about parking spaces, that's relegated to one day, which is Parking Day, Mm -hmm. September 20th this year, but annually, it's the third Friday of September. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the only opportunity to do that and kind of have a blank slate or tabla rasa, I get to decide what I want this to be. To go through the actual process of permanently converting a parking space would have to do a lot of rounds of design and community mm-hmm. feedback, and tactical urbanism would be a part of that process, but you couldn't just go out and claim a parking space like a <laughs> squatter, you know. <laughs>
1: You'll get kicked out. (laughs) Have you heard of any anyone that bothered to go through the formal proposal process to set up a parking day location get turned down? Are there criteria that would not allow you to win approval of the spot?
2: Yes. So they don't want to do anything that would be a distraction for drivers. Because the root of this is that we want to make cities better, and part of that is safety for everybody. Mm -hmm. So they don't want loud music. You have to respect the visibility triangles of intersections. You can't obscure walking aisles or the existing sidewalk. You can't have things that hit you in the face, you know, like just you know <laughs> normal, really commonsensical specific. things. But, but like all, all my best ideas, right? Just, ah. Anything aggressive, I think, wouldn't go over very well. But yeah, balloons was like one of the things you couldn't have, like streamers really? and stuff. Oh. So they might be a little surprised when they see what we have for this year's <laughs> event. But Seattle is a lot more open to these tactical types of interventions for example, in Houston, it was very difficult. There was no actual permit to do a parking day or a parklet. You had to get a temporary street use permit that was also, it was the same permit that you would have to get if you wanted to have a parade, you know, and along with that is a million dollars worth of liability insurance. Uh And that's just completely unattainable for the average person. So in that sense, like it shifted parking day's sphere of influence to only corporations or businesses that could afford that type of insurance. And you don't get to the real spirit of it in those types of situations. Whereas with Seattle, it's like you fill out like a, a survey monkey and you show a picture or a site plan of what you plan to do and they take care of the rest for you. God, super simple and free. City. It's not even
0: funny how awesome living here is. It's honestly. really awesome. And so
2: <laughs> Seattle also has these like community crosswalks program, which is another example of tactical urbanism, like turning into like a publicly funded process that is now a distinct part of placemaking for different neighborhoods and also builds like the capacity of citizens and artists to get involved in like making their neighborhood the place that they want to live in and telling the stories that are important to them and that they want to hear and all those things. But yeah, Seattle's very far ahead of the rest of the country. Uh, New York City is really far ahead. Mm -hmm. This whole tactical urbanism thing just blew up when New York City started doing it. Mm
0: Well, there was a plan at one time, this goes back a ways, to turn all of Broadway into a park. Mm -hmm. And then it got rolled back and rolled back. It was connected to way, way back. Sorry, I'm going to go off on tangent here. In the early 2000s, when New York City really wanted to make a heavy bid for the Olympics, they wanted to stop people from car commuting into the city. And they tried to make all the bridges a heavy, heavy, heavy toll for any passenger car. And part of that was closing off of Broadway permanently and literally turning it into an entire green space. Mm-hmm. In the city, it was actually approved, and then the state wouldn't let them do it. Interesting. And then it was rolled back. And then that actually dovetails into part of the story you were telling in the blog post of yours that I know that's coming up, where they started sectioning certain points off, and they're like trying to sort of like make it happen now from a completely different direction, mm-hmm. which is absolutely fascinating, which leads into a question I have for you the history of streets in general there was this great video by Adam Conover who does that Adam Ruins Everything series I don't know if you've ever seen it mm-hmm. but he goes over how streets became for cars mm-hmm. and how the whole process of like originally anybody could be on a street for any reason doing anything right. cars were the ones that were intruding yeah. and then law after law was passed basically by lobbyists mm-hmm. to sell cars Right, and that streets were essentially public spaces paid for by taxpayers handed over to car companies Yeah. And now this seems like the beginning of trying to reclaim it. Do you ever find that frustrating that no. we have to now reclaim the very spaces that we pay for?
2: Yeah, reclaiming the infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it seems mm-hmm. counterintuitive, but we're just so entrenched in this really convenient way of transportation mm-hmm. and there's nothing financially like viable for most communities other than that. So that's kind of where we're stuck. And so the frustration, you know, that maybe I feel sometimes and others is definitely the crux of the passion for tactical urbanism. It's definitely about making some type of respectful protest on the control of the right of way mm-hmm. by vehicular cars.
0: Do guerrilla interventions tend to be more ambitious than non? People who don't bother to get permits, they go out there, they do something crazy?
2: I would say those are usually smaller scale things, but they usually stand out more. They're more interesting and more expressive. So that's, like, the human nature side. It's, like, human nature, like, we want to influence our environments and we want to have some level of control over our things. I read somewhere that it was saying that, like, nature is our vulnerability as humans, you know? So we're always competing with our environment to try to get a place where we feel comfortable. And and so I think tactical urbanism, let's call it guerrilla. When we're talking about, like, the human, like, unsanctioned stuff, I would say that's all guerrilla-type urbanism. So, like, the bench bombing, like going and throwing down, a, like, a wooden bench somewhere where there's no benches in a streetscape. Or um, <laughs> I was
1: like, I'm going to need a clarification. Yeah, I was that. like, bench <laughs> bombing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, like,
2: you know, the sub is, like, flower bombing. So if you've walked by, like, an abandoned uh-huh. sidewalk, you see the one lone sunflower or whatever. That's mm-hmm. usually strategic and not just a volunteer plant. Mm-hmm. In Seattle, you'll walk around, you'll see these, like, kind of hanging mobile kind yeah, of art pieces. Yeah, I've seen that. That, That's an example of guerrilla art. I mean, That's completely unsanctioned. I've actually seen the guy putting it together. He just Mm. grabs trash and makes something and paints it. It's really fascinating. And then, like, also, like, you know, you see cyclists ride around with spray paint in their back pockets. It's because they're spray painting cracks to, like, to show, like, where, like, a danger might be. So it's also about, like, bringing safety issues out of the periphery into kind of the focus of things. That's super cool. Um, I had no idea about that. Yeah. It's really fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of examples of like painting fire hydrants or like doing things to utility poles. And it's like these elements of the public realm that completely fade away and you stop thinking about it. But there's tremendous amounts of infrastructure that goes into getting that one stub out for the fire hydrant, you know? And if you think about the network of pipes that are transporting water across the entire city, it'll blow your mind. And maybe it'll help you think about your water usage a little bit more. So there is that aspect. There's like some environmental pieces, other times it's just because it looks looks good other times it's because you just want to mess something up you mm-hmm. know it varies as much as humans do in the way it takes form i feel like on the gorilla side for sure that's super interesting
0: if there's something really ridiculously exciting about that i don't know why not that i think the rules are there for perfectly good reasons mm-hmm. but there's something about like the delight when someone goes and does something like that because they're rarely ever destructive in any way. Right. It's almost usually just this wonderful, whimsical thing. In yeah, a way. yeah. And yeah. Why, why shouldn't we play with our city?
2: Yeah, and, like, you walk down, like, a master, let's just say Broadway. There's all these new buildings coming up here in Seattle. And there's, like, a form-based code to these buildings, right? And it becomes sterile after a while. And so even though they're trying to do the right things with the amount of glazing along the street and maybe there's, like, the, the streetscape's wider, has bike facilities, facilities street trees wide sidewalks all those types of things but it's still kind of going to feel like it could have been anywhere right Right, right. so the tactical or the guerrilla stuff is like really cool for giving it that uniqueness and that sense of place which i think is desperately missing in most cities is that sense of identity in neighborhoods and so tactical urbanism is a way of like advancing that And making it more accessible and giving people the feeling that they can affect something that they pay taxes on because I feel like they should you know that's my opinion
0: (laughs) absolutely if a community were to approach you and ask you advice on how to help shape the evolution of their public spaces Where would you point them? What would you tell them to do? What are some simple steps?
2: Mm, I don't necessarily know the answer for Seattle yet. So in Houston, there was multiple neighborhood organizations that were kind of community champions. They were nonprofits, volunteer organized, but they sent out weekly newsletters and things of that nature. They had very limited funds. If they did have funds, it was usually from grant sources. So Mm -hmm. what we would do is we would work, if there was an issue in an urban area or they had a project in mind, we would partner with that person, usually just pro bono. And we would work with them to identify kind of the problems that they're seeing. And then we would come up with like a preferred option or what we thought would be like the best solution for their particular area. And then we would recommend procuring, like, let's say $500. And that could be from a number of places, you know, that's kind of up to them where they get the funding. Mm-hmm. We could help them write grants if they needed that assistance. Then we would just buy the tape, buy the elements that we could create the new space for and lay it out and tape it out. For example, we did a bike lane on this underserved street. And there was a a very frequently trafficked corridor to an elementary school that had zero crosswalks, and it went across a five-lane road at one point. Um, And there was no nuance to the street, so it was just five lanes. It was like a drag strip. And it's just not a safe place for kids to be walking back and forth. And it was two of these streets one block away from each other. So it was a very kind of hectic environment. And so we wanted to strategically go in and link this corridor to the school and then tee off these on-street bike lanes to reduce the number of lanes for that street, slow the traffic down. So we did a bike lane on one side, on-street parking on the other, narrowed it down to three lanes. And then we had these really colorful crosswalks. We tested it on one street for one day with $500. And we were able to see how people used and how cars reacted and we kept it on the ground for as long as the city allowed us to and as of today those two streets have permanent bike lanes on there and the crosswalks are installed so it was a great way for community leaders to organize neighbors into a volunteer event so they felt like it wasn't just some outside source coming in and like solving their problems for them it was like they were integral in the team that demonstrated the success of these, like, transportation improvements.
0: Yeah, proof of concept. Exactly. That's cool.
2: And so it led to proof of concept, and then you got the public funding behind it from the city. Mm -hmm. They permanently installed these things, and the hope would be that private development would piggyback on the public development and start changing things like light poles and widening the streetscapes outboard of the curbs once they saw the success of the maneuvers we did within the lanes. And so you kind of like, it's the series of interventions that build towards that final solution based off the proof of concept that you established.
0: So if the gloves were off and you could kind of do any intervention in the city, any size you wanted... What would you do? What do you think Seattle needs the most?
2: They have all these crazy intersections on the sides of hills with like six lanes going off in different directions. A lot of that needs to be rectified. There's some of these like small forgotten spaces, like forgotten little parking stalls that were a byproduct of some weird geometry. Like I love the forgotten, like weird spaces in Seattle and like converting those into more pedestrian oriented and like simplifying intersections. I would start there.
1: So, for our listeners that aren't in Seattle, so they're not roundabouts, they're not giant things, but they are small, circular, so-called islands. traffic circles, yeah. islands in the middle yeah. of intersections that do not have stop signs. Right. And it's always a gigantic debate about who are gets they... to go first in yeah. the intersection. But as I understand it, those traffic circles are not maintained by the city. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a community-based thing for right. maintaining whatever traffic circle you might be near. Yeah. Is that in itself a form of this kind of ownership over public spaces? or Absolutely. I guess it is officially sanctioned per se. I haven't heard of anybody getting in trouble for doing something inappropriate on one of those, but I'm sure there are rules.
2: I'm not sure the rules, but you're definitely right. It's not maintained by the city, and it's kind of up to whoever's going to do something there to kind of, like, set the standard. Each of those little circles on my street, which is in Capitol Hill, Mm -hmm. is different. Mm -hmm. And it's because there's different housing units and different demographics of people. So they just uniquely kind of express their sense of place. There's a really good example of this in Oakland, California, Uh where they took one of these little roundabouts. Some guy noticed that there was a bunch of crime in this area. And this little roundabout was being used as basically a dump site. And so he went out and bought like a two foot tall Buddha statue and he set it on a rebar stake and set it in the <laughs> ground as like a permanent thing. And it just completely changed the area. Like mm-hmm. people started coming to the Buddha like in acts of prayer, like somehow it emanated a sense of peace or like.
1: It's like a whole different sense of what. Who is it? Uh, Jane Jacobs having eyes on the street. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. <laughs> but Buddha is watching. Having you. Buddha on the
2: yeah. street. Yeah, <laughs> totally. On the
1: street. You know, someone put
2: one in my apartment, and I thought it was like the greatest thing ever, and it was gone two days later. You know, so not it,
1: like literally inside.
2: No, inside my apartment.
1: Did you? Someone put did you invite in them in? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, sorry, not not in my okay. actual room. I'm like really? Just showed up oh, in there. in the hallway. No, that'd be weird. Like I was some. Just like whoa tactical urbanism <laughs> ghosts
1: yeah exactly haunting I was me a creeped out of there
2: must have done something wrong on a public project tactical <laughs> yeah. residentialism. or maybe something right
1: yeah <laughs> yeah
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're happy with how the project turns out, but please stop leaving Buddhas in my in right. my apartment. Not cool.
2: Totally. But it changed the area and the crime went away and like people started building like structure around it and improving the area even further. So it's just mm-hmm. like sometimes it's the smallest little like yeah, intentional awesome. act can completely change an area. I mean, that's a great example. If you listen to 99% Invisible, there's a second half of a podcast that's all about that, and it's really interesting. Yes. Do you think
1: there are ones? I mean, because that is a very uplifting story Mm -hmm. about communities. can't help it, but I wonder if there are ones where there's like a competition about you know which neighbors want to have control over the traffic circle, and they're trying to undermine each other. And have you ever heard of any stories of community disputes about who has control over their local traffic circle? (laughs) I can't help it; I just go there. I'm like, well, no. I I
2: want to have that story.
0: (laughs) This whole conversation is me. It's like inspiring me. I have a traffic circle that you're gonna go
1: take ownership. That it's
0: trash. It's garbage. There's nothing on it. It's
1: on you, Charles. Why are you letting it? It's on my street. I know.
0: I had. Had no idea I could just do that. Yeah, I just thought the city would just like do something to. Yeah, and it's literally garbage. Yeah, don't and wait no one city. takes any well, care you of you are at all.
1: such a terrible community member, not taking care of your traffic circle. Well,
0: that, now that I know that I can,
2: I'll bring the yeah. seeds.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> seriously,
0: I want to put a tree, and we'll do some things to it. It's going to be, great. but you can't look at my house <laughs> oh, yeah. and anything that I've planted. <laughs> okay. so first I need to put like a giant screen in front of my house,
2: <laughs> so I don't judge your landscape. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I don't need that yeah, right I mean, now. I'm not that judgmental as a landscape that's architect. That's good to
0: hear. I only have like a three foot by nine-foot strip of thing to okay. do anything with, and it's not ambitious. <laughs> sure. <So. laughs> That's a very small plot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: yeah, It's all <laughs> of got. <Kat. laughs>
0: but yeah, no, it's totally inspired me to do something with it.
2: Okay, here's a great example. This always happens. Like, pop-up bike lanes
1: mm-hmm.
2: happen in a, an area that was parallel parking. Oh, yeah. People always park in the bike lane, and it's mm-hmm. very contentious about getting them to move, and because it's not fully sanctioned or part of a, like, let's say capital improvement plan, then they're refusing to adhere to these temporary restrictions. So I mean, anytime you have humans involved with anything, things are gonna go south, probably.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny you should true mention words. that. So it, Philadelphia, where I'm from, is one of the most bikeable cities in the country. Mm-hmm. It's got it used to have the most dedicated bike lanes, but that's probably not true anymore. But that happens sometimes, but the cyclists are so crazy about it that if you park in a bike lane, your window will get smashed. Like, it's Philadelphia. So, like, that's, like, they don't ticket you.
2: (laughs) I really like like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's just, like, the cop will just be like, man, they're going to get it. Like, they're just going (laughs) to drive by. Well,
2: they've developed a sense of ownership because now part of the right-of-way is allocated for them specifically. Yeah. And so you can see the entitlement and drivers have sometimes in conflicts with pedestrians. They feel like they own this situation or whatever Mm -hmm. that passage is. So adding these on-street facilities for different modes of transportation is all part of equalizing kind of the sense of ownership. And I think that'll lead to a lot of safety improvements over the long run. The story
0: that occurred to me was one that actually I told on a previous episode a while ago in Washington, D.C. while I lived there. Have you ever been to D.C.? Yes. You know the DuPont Circle Station, by any chance? No. There's this big Oculus like in the street, huge circular thing, and in the center of it, the escalators come up. Mm -hmm. But the actual opening has to be like 40, 50-foot diameter. Mm -hmm. Big thing. And then it's a very, very steep escalator, and there are these terrace planting areas except nothing is ever planted in the planting areas. I used to commute through this section all the time. And it came through one day and suddenly there were just flowers in all the planters, but then a story came out later in the post that said that someone had actually just gone and done that, Mm. and it was like an article about this guy, but they didn't use his name so that he wouldn't get in trouble, and then the city went and ripped them out.
1: What?
2: It's a complete waste of resources. Yeah,
0: like they dedicated a team of professional uh, city of the District of Columbia landscapers to literally rip all the flowers out, not replant anything, and it was like oh my god, but like there's a situation where it didn't, so it didn't work out. Yeah. Even if they just literally <laughs> dug
1: them up and then set them back down a couple inches to the right for or the, whatever that For, to, for so the so union it was wages sanctioned or something, city. right?
0: That would have made sense. Yeah, if they just <laughs> watered it once, yeah, you they could have <laughs> <they> sanctioned it. <laughs> Did I mention I, I left Washington, D.C.? Did, I, <laughs> did that come up? Is that why? Is that, why? That, that was it's, the last thing. The <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that this was is the last it. straw. <laughs> I went into the office the next day, and I was like, I'm sorry. Oh, that's funny. And I was <laughs> here until you ripped the flowers out. But it was uh, the most Washington, D.C. thing I, I think that I ever saw. In DC.
2: (laughs) Well, apparently, they have like really good bike facilities and they're open to those things now.
0: It's ironically a very bikeable city. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of uh, parks. I mean, it's huge. They're doing a really, really cool thing with a national mall Mm -hmm. where OMA is building like this museum under the mall, and the mall is going to like break up into the museum. It's going to be really interesting. But it's like the rules are. Religion Mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C., as that story would demonstrate. Oh, yeah. And it's funny, Seattle, for all of its rules, they're willing to bend them, break them, make new rules. Like, if you have a good idea here, it seems like people are so receptive.
2: (laughs) That's the way it feels. So, there's a lot of initiatives that Seattle already has going that other cities don't even know how to start. I'm still like learning what those are, you know, and what the breadth of their kind of tactical resume is. They have a whole entire department of. Of neighborhoods which is interesting.
1: I don't even know about it. Department of oh,
0: Neighborhoods. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. The Evergrade did a, did a thing on
1: them. Oh.
0: The super in-depth. I'm not sure what their powers are but they have like in-depth knowledge about every single neighborhood. The entire history. Oh, the that's people really that cool. live there they know all the data like off the back of their hand. It's incredible. Huh. Well, we're almost out of time, but is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about? You already told me your dream intervention, so... Let
2: me think about the dream intervention a little bit more. And then also I wanted to, like, tie a bow on this transition from, like, auto-centric streets and public rights way to a more, like... I guess, 21st century expression of that where mm-hmm. transportation equity is present in the urban environment. So you have scooters, walkers, cyclists, who knows what, one wheels, cars, <laughs> <laughs> motorcycles, I buses. I saw this
0: guy the other day. Segways. He was, Segways. He, was on his, he was on his little motorized uniwheel and I swear, I doubt he survived the trip. <laughs> like he was trying it on the sidewalk and oh, he no. like fell over a couple oh, no. times and he was wearing a helmet and everything, but I was like, dude, I was a little worried for Oh, it's super scary when you see
2: them (laughs) transitioning on and off the sidewalks. I mean, I still feel like the sidewalks are for people on foot. And everything else should be within some type of protected, lowered area. It's based off speed. Even as a
1: pedestrian sometimes, Mm -hmm. I stumble. I mean, maybe I'm just a little clumsy sometimes. But, like, if I have heels on, for example, it's really easy to land on the tactile... What are they called? Like, the tactile surfaces at crosswalks.
2: Oh, are you talking about the little raised bumps? Yeah. 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 So, like, I
1: understand why they're there, and it's really important. But, like, if you're not paying attention you're looking at your phone you've got heels on, it's really easy to roll your ankle on those. Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating thing about when we're starting to add all these different ways that what are kind of grouped together as pedestrians-ish, like whatever you're allowed to do on a sidewalk, and maybe we need to redefine those rules a little bit. Like, can you have your little monowheel thing on there? I don't know. I think it should be based off— There's safety concerns with that, right?
2: Yes, there's definitely safety concerns because everyone's moving at different speeds. When you start combining different modes at different speeds, that's where you get into the the trouble. trouble. I think Atlanta is experimenting with this cool terminology— It's called L-I-T. Literally intense.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I wish. (laughs) These
2: lit lanes stand for light individual transportation. And so I think that aggregates the one wheels, the electric scooters, anything that's operating about 15 miles per hour or under. And so they get a lane to kind of navigate as like a mass or like a school of fish, Mm -hmm. essentially. And then the cars would have their own lanes and maybe the bus or the light rail share lane or something uh-huh. like that. So I think what we're seeing is this transition into these different types of streets that support a wider variety of transportation options. And there's a lot of really cool ideas on how that looks from like a layout point of view. And so there's this organizing group called NACTO, which is the National Association of City Transportation Officials. Um, And they've developed these guidelines and they're these really great books with diagrams and pictures and axonometric views. They kind of illustrate the best case scenario for these types of arrangements in the city environments. And it's very case by case. So you can kind of pick and choose what you like. And so like this is a great resource for cities because they can look at these guides and be like, This is the situation we have. This is what we want, but we can't afford that right now. And so tactical urbanism is a way to test these ideas in these situations with little to no public funding, Mm -hmm. see if they actually work, and then invest into the design fees and the permitting fees and the construction costs afterwards. And that also allows for all that built-in time to get feedback from the community so that you have these equitable streets that are contextual and then we know that they're actually going to work. So from a planning point of view, I feel like tactical urbanism is going to get to the point where it's completely integrated into the design process and there isn't a world where we don't vet these ideas before throwing them Mm -hmm. out into the real world. It's a world I want to live in. Me too. (laughs) Could I add two more things? Oh, totally. Sure, absolutely. One is about like resources for people who are interested in learning more about tactical urbanism. Like I said, it kind of blew up after New York City did the things that you mentioned, Charles. Mm -hmm. And so the NACTO Guides is a great place to start. Uh, Mike Lydon and I think Andrew Garcia wrote a book called The Tactical Urbanism Guide. That's a great place to start. Um, There's a website called Streets Collaborative. They're a great organizing body for this type of school of thought. And then Streets Blog USA is just a good place to track. If you're a transportation nerd, then you would love Streets Blog USA. (laughs) Yeah, and then I guess the others, the materials or the toolkit for like what encompasses tactical urbanism from the very beginning. It's like it's cones, it's gorilla tape, it's chalk, it's little pieces of wood, it's pallets. It's plants from contractors they had left over. It's basically free and found object stuff. And the things that you do need to buy are available on Amazon, which also supports how accessible it is for people. Mm-hmm. You know, So anyone can literally go on Amazon, buy a roll of tape, buy some chalk paint, go outside and make a crosswalk where they feel completely unsafe walking across the street. And I say go do that tomorrow because that's the type of city that we need to live in where it's citizen-driven and it's kind of this ground-up urbanism where everyone kind of takes ownership of the places they live in and they make the changes they want to see goes back to that Gandhi quote.
0: Be the change you want to see in the world? Be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't that Ricky Bobby? Or, uh... Ricky Bobby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I don't know. It no, wasn't, I think it, it it wasn't was Ricky Bobby. <laughs> Bobby. I, just, I was
2: just kidding. Or Barney. <laughs> that was,
0: I want to go fast. <laughs> <laughs> was, go fast. <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: Can you explain for people that don't know what gorilla tape is, what mm-hmm. that is?
2: Yes. It's a gorilla spelled like the animal, not like gorilla not tactics. Not like gorilla tactics. That we okay. were talking about okay. earlier. So Gorilla Glue also makes gorilla tape and they make a bright orange version, and it's like $7 for 100 feet and it's a great investment. So here's a funny story. In Houston, we did this and we we striped out a new alignment for this 60-foot-wide road and the city did not like it at all. <laughs> we found that it worked because there was a nearby like soccer field and people were using these parking spaces that we had created and leaving the bike lane side alone. And mm-hmm. so for us, it was a great success because it was being used. And all we did was put tape on the ground. Well, the city ended up coming out and ripping the tape off (laughs) to like change things back to how they were, but the adhesive from the tape left this dark spots where dirt collected, Uh and so those lines still exist today and people still parking them (laughs) no matter what.
0: That's
1: amazing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so it was like a win for the planners, you know what I'm saying?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for making time to sit and chat with us. This is super, super fun. This year, parking day falls on September 20th, and that's soon. Wherever you are around the world, we encourage you to get out there and see what those in your community are doing. And if you're in our neighborhood, Capitol Hill, here in Seattle, Taylor and the Board and Vellum team will be just a few blocks away from our office at the intersection of 15th Avenue East and East Harrison Street. BNV's Parking Day teams put together an amazing installation. It's a sculptural, interactive game that feels like a cross between Whack-A-Mole and Twister. We'll be there from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. on September 20th, and we really hope to see you there. Also, as usual, Check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Check out the blog on BoredEnvellum.com as well. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, if you're in the neighborhood, please stop on by and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.